This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. We are here again on the No Ceilings NBA feed, the new home for the Deep Dives podcast. And today is going to be a draft Deep Dives episode. And I am here today with the conductor of chaos himself, Tyler Rucker. Tyler, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. You know, I was just thinking, Nick, is this my first time on Deep Dives with you? It probably is. I mean, amazing. No ceilings. It's been with Tyler Metcalf, the, I would say dearly departed, but I'm pretty sure he's going to be back on the podcast relatively soon, but you know, (laughs) semi dearly departed Tyler Metcalf. But yeah, I think I've been on the no ceilings NBA podcast a couple of times before we made it an everyday thing on the feed. So if you haven't checked out the no ceilings NBA podcast feed yet, definitely do so. But yeah, happy to, Happy to have you on, and today is a really fun topic that we're going to be covering. So you wrote last week about why every NBA team needs a Teen Wolf, and you let me know before publishing that this was one that you thought I would love, and spoiler alert, I did. This was a ton of fun, and I'm really looking forward to breaking it down with you in detail, but I wanted to sort of start off with the sort of team-building philosophy stuff. Mm -hmm. This. And something that I've talked about very frequently on the podcast is how enamored I am prospect wise with guys who I think of as connectors, you know, guys who maybe aren't, you know, the 30 point per game scorer, but who do, I mean, the little things is kind of a cliche, but, you know, do the little things, you know, be the guy who makes the pass to the assist, be the guy who boxes out, maybe doesn't get the rebound, but, you know, helps his team by contributing in ways that allow the rest of the game to be easier for the rest of their teammates. And for those of you who have not seen the movie Teen Wolf, Michael J. Fox's character basically is 2005, 2006 Kobe Bryant for, you know, much of the season. And then the final game comes around and all of a sudden he's, you know, going for it. He's passing, he's making his teammates better. He's not in wolf form again, spoiler alert for those of you who have not seen the movie And it's something that really fascinates me about draft philosophy is there are so many guys who I think go underappreciated because what they do doesn't show up in the box score, but being able to be a connector and make things work for the rest of the team around you, rather than just putting up buckets for yourself is an immensely valuable piece for any team and in particular, any modern NBA team. Yeah, I think it's, you know, we fascinate as evaluators, as scouts, I think even as fans, we all fascinate about the idea of our teams finding another superstar. And I get it. You know, th- those are the exciting players. Those are the ones that put up all the, the points and get the big contract extensions. But 
sometimes you you need those connecting pieces to potentially get to an NBA championship or take that next leap towards your team building, if you want to put it that way. And that's why I kind of had fun with this piece. You know, I, I wanted to write about it. The, if you haven't seen the movie Teen Wolf, like, of course, I'm not talking about the TV shows or whatever was on MTV. No, I'm not going down that route. But, you know, as Nick was saying, it in the middle of the movie, you know, he, Michael J. Fox's character turns into a werewolf. He has all these superpowers. I mean, he looks like LeBron James in his prime. He, like you said, Kobe just putting up ridiculous box scores. But at the end, he kind of turns into this team player that all of a sudden makes all of his teammates better and, and kind of distributes the ball and, and really allows the confidence to build with the rest of their roster. And I think that's the message I wanted to send with this piece was talking about, you know, yes, it is fun to potentially have a top 10 pick and be like, we're getting a superstar. But sometimes like those, those key organizations, those really smart ones, they find value later in the draft. They find those connecting pieces, those glue guys. A lot of people want to say it that way. And I joked and I called it, I said, that's the teen wolf for me. Like it's not just the, you know, the, the mentality or, you know, if we want to call it the Draymond greens is what I wrote about in the article where it's like the toughness, the ability to get your team ready for, you know, a road game in the middle of the season. I think it's just a lot of different areas in which you can impact and, and sacrifice your, maybe your points on a nightly basis to help out in other areas. So let's actually go back to talking about Kobe Bryant because he's mm-hmm. the first player that you sort of mentioned at length in the article. And I think part of the deal with Kobe Bryant is that, you know, as you showed in the stat lines that you put up in the piece for, you know, comparing his crazy 2005, 2006 run to, you know, how he played during the 08, 09, you know, championship level Lakers teams. It's not that he couldn't score 30 points every night. It's just that, you know, that was the difference between a team that was, you know, a sixth seed struggling to make it into the playoffs that kind of needed him to put up 35 a night versus, okay, now we have Pau Gasol. Now we have Lamar Odom, you know, we have, other options running besides me. And if I continue to shoot enough to score 35 points a game, you know, we're still going to be a really, really good team, but maybe we're not going to be the best version of ourselves. If I Kobe Bryant take 35 shots a game. Right. And that's, you know, I think there's sort of the archetype of the glue guy where it's like, you know, you don't really expect them to put up 20 points consistently, put up 30 points consistently. So it is fascinating to sort of look at Kobe as the first case study of, Hey, you know, this is within his full range of capabilities, but the team is probably better off if I'm scoring 25 a night instead of 35 a night. And I mean, those Lakers teams won two titles, right? So, you know, clearly, clearly it worked out in the long run. Yeah. I think, I think that was the funniest part, almost writing it, um, writing this piece was I went through all this, you know, in depth about how you don't need to be the superstar and you can be the guy that just helps in other areas and sacrifices. And then all of a sudden the first player I bring up as an example is Kobe. And I was like laughing while writing it. Cause I was like, everyone's going to look at this and be like, Kobe, what are you talking about? But my point is exactly what you said, Nick was those teams before Kobe was putting up like over 20 field goal attempts a game. Um, I think 0507 he was averaging 25 field goal attempts a game, but he was putting up 33 and a half points per game. So he was doing everything in his power to carry that team. And then obviously he, the team acquires some better assets. Like you said, Pau Gasol. And 
you can be a superstar and, and put up huge numbers, but you can also realize you don't need to do the heavy lifting like you're saying. And I think that was kind of the brilliance with Kobe was realizing like, okay, I could be more efficient. I could put my team in position to succeed. I could sacrifice maybe my, my points per game, but help out in other areas. And, you know, even off the top of my head, if, if anyone's watched the, um, the redeem team documentary, you know, they talk about Kobe joining the team and, all those players like LeBron and Dwayne Wade, you know, they're young up and coming guys. And they're like, Oh, Kobe Bryant's coming to the team. And Kobe's first couple of practices, he set the tone defensively. Cause he's like, Hey, like, this is what this team needs. And he's like, I'm tired of you guys losing. This team needs to have that edge, that mentality on the defensive side of the ball. And that's, that's what I was talking about with the teen wolf. Like he, he came into that team. He came into camp and said, what does this team need? They don't need me to score 30 every game. They need someone to set the tone. They need someone to set an example. And that's all it takes. I'm really glad you brought up the defensive side of this, because I think that's sort of the key point to hit with Kobe in particular. I don't think there's anyone that would accuse Kobe Bryant of not trying his hardest ever in a basketball game, but it's just a matter of, okay, what am I focusing on? Right. It's like if he's shooting 25 shots a game, you know, scoring 33 and a half points per game, you know, the effort on defense goes down a bit because you only have so much energy and you know that Kobe Bryant is expending a hundred percent of his available energy in every single game that he plays. It's just, okay, you know, what do I focus on? Right? Like if the team needs me to put up 33 a night so that we can get to a hundred points and, you know, our offense isn't like last in the league level, that's one thing, but, you know, seeing, all right, the context around me has changed a bit. There are other players who can take on a little bit more of the load than there were in the previous seasons. You know, it does take a certain kind of mindset to just be like, okay, I'm changing my areas of focus. You know, I am giving up a little in terms of scoring because, you know, it's not like he's giving less effort overall. It's just, all right, pick and choose my spots, right? You know, this is a really easy mid-range fadeaway for me. I'm going to take this look. But next time down when I get in the post, you know, hey, they're going to be focusing on me because they think I'm going to shoot that mid-range fadeaway again. And, you know, that's when I kicked a Pagasol running down the lane for an easy bucket that way. So, you know, it's not that, you know, this is true for Michael J. Fox's character too, right? It's like, it's not like the effort is less. It's just what areas am I focusing on for this particular game, for this particular team? 100%. It's it's funny because it, we're talking about Kobe sacrificing his points for games. and It's not like he didn't have games during those years where he was like, okay, it's my time. Like, I'm going to take over. But I think there's the understanding and sacrifice to... You can be a superstar in different ways. You don't just have to average, you know, 30 or 40 points per game. You can be almost a superstar teammate by realizing what is going to make this team the best. Like, what can I do that's potentially going to take us to the next level? And I think Kobe realized at that point of his career, it was like, hey, I can score. I can do that. But is that going to make us a potential title contender? And they had Pau Gasol, and he, obviously, you know, history has shown like the relationship between Pau and Kobe as teammates was was special one, and they went on to win two titles. But you know, it, it's funny with Kobe; you always think of the first thing you think with him is like, oh, this unbelievable offensive player, and it, everyone forgets he was a twelve-time All Defensive guy. <laughs> like that's just that's just the competitor he was, and and that's the mentality he had. I mean, I get the point that you're making, but I think a couple of those later all defensive teams were a bit dicey if we're being entirely honest. Yeah, come on. We all know this. 
Moving on to a player who I don't think anyone would argue earned every single one of their all defensive team spots. And one of your favorite players to talk about Dennis Rodman, the worm. And man, if there was someone who just was a perfect fit for the Chicago Bulls title teams as their third guy, Dennis Rodman was just exactly what they needed in every area it's fascinating to me that basically his most famous run as a basketball player came immediately after his worst run as a basketball player, namely his time in San Antonio, which did not end all that well. But you also focus on his first championship winning team in the Detroit Pistons. And, you know, it's incredibly strange to sort of think about Dennis Rodman as someone who was, you know, an end of the bench guy until you remember this is the dude who had a foot of growth spurt when he was what, like 23 or something. And basically just went from, you know, not a pro prospect at all to in the national basketball association. But I wanted to start out with talking about him on the Pistons because I mean, that was a team that, you know, basically became a title contender the minute they traded away the guy ahead of Dennis Rodman in the rotation. And they threw this guy out there and he's just an absolute menace on the defensive end. And yet what he was most famous for in his later years was being this ridiculous rebounder. So, you know, he's sort of an interesting case study for how someone was sort of a team wolf dynamic in two different contexts in two different ways that became very important to, I mean, to the best teams that we've ever seen in those bad boy Pistons. And of course the later dynasty Chicago Bulls. It, it was so funny because he's, he's one of my favorite players ever. And I wrote this whole piece and I get done and I, I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm like, what am I missing? Like, uh, this doesn't feel like I, it feels like I just blinked on something. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I think I even messaged you. I was like, don't edit. I have another section oh, to add. And that- I got in and, and wrote the Dennis Rodman section faster than any other one. Cause I was like, this is easy. I, I should have had him at the top, but he's always been one of my favorite um, players just because of exactly what you're talking about. Just the differences throughout his career, you know, with Detroit, it, it was this young athletic, hyper, energetic kid that just wanted to play. Like he just brought energy to that team. And he became, you know, we're fascinated now scouting and evaluating prospects, looking for those guys that can guard potentially five positions, or even three, you know, where you're, you're looking for the versatile defenders. And Rodman was almost like the birth of it. It was just, he could guard anyone. Like you could put him on the, the bigger centers, he'd be fine. You put him on point guards, he'd he'd get it done. And I think just seeing how special he was with that, and then all of a sudden, like you said, he has the San Antonio year, which was meh, and then he goes to the Bulls, and you know that was when everyone was kind of like, eh, I don't know, why would you want Rodman? He's a head case. And then he goes to the Bulls and just becomes one of the most important pieces of that puzzle because they lost Horace Grant. They needed rebounding. And Rodman is a brilliant basketball player. And he understood what was needed of him. He needed to be a smart, high IQ, just dominant rebounder and a really good defender. And that's exactly what he was. And he's the perfect piece of this entire puzzle when it came to me writing the Team Wolf thing. Because I was like, Rodman's exactly what I'm trying to talk about. Like, they got him later in the draft. They developed him. He was this versatile asset that the Pistons eventually couldn't keep him off the floor. They had to play him big minutes because of how good he was defensively. And then goes to the Bulls and, and is a key part of their championship run. 
So up next, we have run our test slash yes. meta world boots. And you focus on the Indiana Pacers portion of his career. Of course, the part of his career that everybody knows him for the best is obviously his play with the Sacramento Kings, where he. Yes, of course. Everybody knows that. That's what everybody immediately thinks of. Uh, Ron Artest, star of the last Sacramento Kings team to make the playoffs. But no, in all seriousness, I mean, going back to his time with the Indiana Pacers, I mean, everybody is going to remember that team for the Malice at the Palace, you know, speaking of Detroit. But he was someone who I think if you brought him into the NBA 10 years later than he started, 15 years later than he started, he would have made a lot more than the singular all-star team that he made. I mean, he's someone who was just, you know, he basically would have been like Kawhi Leonard 0.5 is sort of the way I saw him. You know, it's like maybe Kawhi is like Kawhi is Kawhi 1.0, but you know, sort of the pre-evolutionary Kyrie and he, you know, he won defensive player of the year on the wing as just an absolute menace to deal with defensively. But, you know, he was also someone who put up, 20 points a game pretty regularly during his prime. But when that wasn't his focus, I mean, that Pacers team would have really had a shot at the title that year had they not just basically gotten everybody who was important to the team suspended for long stretches of time. He, that's one of my biggest what ifs is if the malice at the palace never happened because that Indiana Pacers team was so dang good. They, I mean, they were, they would have been in favorites. They were very nasty, very deep. But our test was becoming a serious, serious problem around the league. And I'm not talking about like what happened, but I'm saying like on the court, he was just so damn unique and tough to deal with. I mean, he was just a, a absolute monster on the defensive side of the ball. And, you know, he had the ability to put up some big numbers scoring, but I think he understood with that Pacers team what made them the most dangerous was his ability to just take the opposing star player out of a game. Like he was physical. He would give you nightmares. Um, he wasn't afraid to, you know, pick up some fouls by just being over physical and, and getting in your head. And I think that's what made him such a unique weapon around the league at that time. And it's just, I think if, if that doesn't happen, are we looking at our test career completely different? from, you know, maybe he goes on, wins a title with Indiana, stays around there for a while. You never know. I mean, that's just, he was so much fun. I remember just being younger and, and watching that Pacers team and being like, man, this, our test is a problem. So, I mean, I, I wanted to almost like pay homage to that version of him early in his career. Cause he was just so unique. And, and it was kind of almost like the, another wave of like, look how, good a team can be when they have this dominant wing defender that can really just take your the opposing team's offense and just throw it out the window because you're like okay well we're on our test next I guess we're our star guy is going to have a fit the whole entire night I'm admittedly not much of an American football person but I mean you know Ron Artest was one of the first to sort of play that free safety kind of role on defense you know I think we saw the best of that from LeBron on those heat teams but you know he was someone who maybe wasn't quite like Rodman as a one through five guy, but like you put him on a test on the best player one through four, let Jermaine O'Neal worry about the paint and just unleash him, let him wreak havoc on the opposing teams. And I think one of the more interesting parts about both Ron Artest and Dennis Rodman is they almost seem to enjoy defense more than offense. Like it's especially funny with Artest since he was, you know, pretty much a 20 point per game scorer during his prime, but 
you know, they really just seem to care a lot more about the defensive side of the ball and a lot more about, no, you're not getting yours than, okay, I'm going to go get mine. I think that's the biggest part of, of what I wanted to spotlight with some of these guys on this team wolf list is that is so rare these days. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it takes so much sacrifice if you want to put it that way, but just to understand like, Hey, I, I can put up numbers like that, but I'm going to be extremely valuable to this team. If I just lock in defensively and, you know, make us dangerous and I think a lot of guys, you know, it, it's hard to just say like, hey, I'm going to just be the best defender possible and, and let let my teammates get the, the offensive run or, you know, get their numbers. But the guys that are willing to do that and the guys that are willing to compete and just get after it every single night on the defensive side of the ball, that's, that's the reason why they stay around in the league for a long time. I had a couple of guys on this list that um, – I, I wanted to make sure I, I mentioned him because I was doubting it, but I mentioned someone later on this list that is the perfect example of that. I was just like, Hey, this guy was clawing for a way to, to get into the NBA and he stuck around because of how good he was as a defender. He found a way to be valuable for every team that he's ever been on. And, and it's just really, really unique. And that's the team wolf mentality. Like, Hey, I can get my numbers. I can stick with any of these guys around the league, but you know, what can I do to make the team more dangerous, more efficient? Someone else who definitely puts in the bulk of their focus on the defensive end and probably the player who, when you say teen wolf about a modern day NBA player, probably the player who comes to mind for the most people, Draymond Green, who went from being the 35th overall pick to being Draymond Green, right? I mean, I'm not sure I really need to say it any more than that. I mean, the guy is a future Hall of Famer at this point, and it's almost exclusively on the back of his incredibly unselfish playmaking and his just absolute commitment and focus on being, you know, one of the smartest defensive players we've ever seen in the NBA. I, I absolutely love Draymond. I know everyone listening is probably still riding the high of making the Jordan Poole Draymond jokes, but I, I think we're going to look back and, and really just appreciate how awesome Draymond was his whole career. Because talk about a guy that just brilliant on both sides of the ball, understood his role and said, okay, this is what this team needs. Um, how can I be the best, you know, the superstar version of it? And offensively, just his acknowledgement to be like, okay, we're Steph and Clay, you know, that I'm a good passer. I understand how to read the floor. Where can I put them in positions to succeed? And then defensively, just how good and dominant he's been his entire career on the defensive side of the ball. It's, it's just, that's the, you know, we always, are evaluating guys and we're like, oh, he's that tweener size. I don't know if he can stick in the league. And it's like, well, sometimes you can stick because of other parts of your game. And, and Draymond's just a brilliant basketball mind that understands how to make an impact on both sides of the floor. He understood early on with that Warriors team, like, hey, I could stay on this court if I play good defense and, and I make good passes. And he's made a career out of it. He's going to make the Hall of Fame, like you said, Nick. So, um, he's just so important too, because he's the mentality guy. He, I know how good Steph is. I know how good clay clay is. Draymond is the heart and soul of that team. Like he gets those guys 
motivated for, you know, playing in Utah in February where you're like, okay, the all-star break's coming up. We could kind of coast and Draymond's the guy, you know, getting everyone fired up for a game. Like, Hey, we got to take care of business. It's just, those are the, the glue guys that you need. Those are the, you know, the connecting pieces that we're talking about. Speaking of exceptional defensive players, let's move on to the next player on the list. And I'm just going to let you run wild here because this is your guy. Marcus Smart, who I think makes absolute sense as a player to put on this list. Yeah, I, I had to give give some love to my boy Marcus Smart. Um, that's pretty much no. I wrote the Teen Wolf thing just to give Marcus Smart his shine. No, I'm kidding, but that makes sense. That makes yeah, sense. exactly. It, it's just another guy, kind of like Rodman, where we talked about earlier. He's he's adapted throughout his whole career with whatever role was asked of him. Um, he was mainly like a, an off the bench guy that came in, gave a spark played good defense then Boston last year needs a point guard. They give all their trust to Marcus smart and he had a fantastic season. And just talking about a guy that can completely swing the momentum of a game by just, you know, a loose ball or one steal and a layup, or it's just the, the ability to know your strengths, but to also understand how to put your teammates in positions to succeed. And I think smart was fantastic last year as a point guard. I, I've been a huge Marcus smart fan my entire life. I had doubts last year as him being the starting point guard and he was just brilliant. And I think that's rising to the occasion and that teen wolf mentality of this is what my team needs. I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to do everything in my power to, to help us get to the next level. And, you know, if, you know, Andrew Wiggins didn't have just the career series of his life, the Celtics would have won the championship, but you know, I'm over it. I forgot about it. Yeah, you definitely sound like you're <laughs> now, part of the thing with Marcus Smart that's so fascinating for me is when I was evaluating him as a prospect, the things that really stood out to me were on the offensive end. Like, you know, wow, this is a guy who you know, can get to the rim at will, who's a really good and unselfish passer. And he's someone who, you know, I think could be a serious point guard for a team. You know, not someone who I thought of as a combo guard, but someone who could legitimately lead the point. And instead, at the NBA level, he's evolved into a bit more of an off guard than a point guard who is just this absolute menace on the defensive end. Who's totally willing to get posted up by seven footers and does a lot better in those matchups than a lot of seven footers do actually, because his base is so strong because he's got such ridiculously quick hands, but he's someone who, you know, from where he was in college to where he was in the NBA, it was a huge transformation. And I think his willingness to say, okay, I'm going to take a step back offensively and really focus on the defensive end. I mean, he was the defensive player of the year last year, right? That's a huge evolution in where I saw his game from his college career to his pro career. I'm right there with you, you know, watching him. And I know I said I had some doubts about him being a full-time point guard last year. It was just more of all of a sudden the the drastic shift in, in roles because coming into the NBA, I thought absolutely he could be a point guard. Um, when I was evaluating him at Oklahoma State, I was like, hey, he's got the playmaking and the vision, and he plays with poise and, and control. But I think the early portion of his career, he's just like, hey, I, I got to figure a way to get minutes. And, you know, Boston, when Brad Stevens was there, and they wanted you to play defense. Like, that was how you earned your spot in the rotation. But smart, just how – he's been absolutely just awesome to watch as a defensive pro- like player. Like I, I 
exactly what you're saying about he guards some big guys better than most bigs. Like it's unbelievable just to, the switchability he has and it's all the mentality and just putting in work and realizing that could be his strength. And um, he's just been an absolute joy to, to, to watch. I, I could talk for two hours, Nick, about Marcus Smart. You know this. I do, but unfortunately we have other players to cover, so we can't mm. uh, Mark Smart for all two hours. So we'll move on now to someone who basically created an NBA career for themselves by being this Teen Wolf type. And I'm talking about Patrick Beverly here, who was someone who, you know, was playing overseas, did not have an established role on an NBA team, didn't seem like he would you know, seems like he might be someone who, hey, he'll have a nice career overseas and that'll be how it goes for Patrick Beverly. And instead he's established a 10 year career for himself basically by just, I mean, I don't know. It feels weird to say this given the dirtier aspects of Patrick Beverly's reputation, but just someone who seems to want it more than everybody else every time he steps out on the court. And I mean, in particular, you know, he established himself as a starter in multiple places and coming from a guy who was, you know, not even on the NBA radar. I mean, it's a lot like, you know, another NBA player, Jameer Nelson. I mean, uh, PJ Tucker, who, you know, started those of you who get that reference, get that reference, but you know, someone who had to, but you know, it's fascinating. That really hurt. I really appreciate that. I don't mean to interrupt you, but that really hurt. And I caught it late. So thanks a lot. Okay. Well, I could go back to making uh, warrior jokes if that makes you feel better. Where your Celtics jokes? Is, is that no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It hurt more, hurts more, actually. So thanks. I appreciate it. Great. So then let's go back to Patrick Beverly. So I stop shanking you here. But, you know, he's someone who, again, I don't think if he thinks of himself as someone who is, you know, I'm going to get mine scoring wise every time he steps out on the court, I'm right. not sure he gets more than a cup of coffee in the NBA. And instead, he, you know, again, has started in multiple places and has established himself as a long term NBA veteran. Yeah, and that's who I was hinting about earlier. Is Patrick Beverly's created a heck of a career for himself, and, and like you said, he was playing overseas, had a couple instances where he was like final cuts, just could not latch on a roster, and he kind of realized like, okay, what can I do? And and everyone has the the mentality or the the pride that they want to be this, you know bucket getter at, at the NBA level prove their worth and I think that Be- Beverly looked in the mirror and was like I can cause some you know chaos on the defensive side of the ball and he does it very well every single place he's gone I know he's kind of been like a journeyman lately but every place he goes he's made an impact he's one of those guys that if he's not on your team you're annoyed by him if he's on your team you love him and it's just I, I had to give him some some love on the Teen Wolf piece because I was like, Beverly's exactly the guy that literally was doing everything he could to get on an NBA roster and then finally realized, this is how I make teams better. I play great defense. I don't need to score a bunch. I just need to be in the right position, help my teammates out. And, hey, he, he's He's done a great job of, you know, I'm not saying milking, but he's done a great job of extending his career by just doing what is asked of him every stop of the way. So before we started recording, I told you that there were two players in this Teen Wolf piece that I wanted to focus on in particular. And so I've saved them for the final two. And the first up of those is Shane Battier. And Uh Battier had one of the more fascinating NBA careers I've ever followed in his 
first season in the 0102 season for the Memphis Grizzlies. The Grizzlies were a god awful team. They lost 59 games that year, and Shane Battier scored 14 and a half points a game for that team, starting 78 games. And that was his highest points per game average for his entire career. He averaged 10.1 points twice in two other places, but he went from being someone who was, you know, basically a second scoring option for a terrible, terrible team to someone who just filled every single category that you don't see in the box score. You know, he was someone who switched positions multiple times during his career. You know, he was a two guard for Houston in the late 2000s. He was a small forward slash really more of a power forward type in Miami. And, you know, Miami, those were the last years of his career. And in terms of what I was mentioning earlier about how LeBron was probably the best defensive free safety we've seen in basketball, a huge part of the reason why he was able to do that is because he had Shane Battier filling the rotations behind him. You know, he had someone who he knew he could rely on as one of the smartest defensive minds in the game who would give the effort. And offensively, all he really cared about doing was, you know, moving the ball well, making the right passing read. And if he's open in the corner and shooting from deep and, you know, if you look at his box score numbers, he's like, okay, why is this guy getting as many minutes as he did? And, you know, he was basically someone who was at the forefront of a lot of the analytics revolution around basketball. You know, Daryl Morey in particular was someone who absolutely adored Shane Battier's game. And, you know, a huge part of it was basically being like, wait, why do all of Shane Battier's teams do so much better when he's on the floor versus off the floor, despite the fact that his box score numbers are mediocre at best? I mean, he didn't average above 10 points a game for the final not eight seasons of his career, you know, and yet probably the seasons of his career for which he's the best known are his final years in Miami, where he was such a huge part of those championship winning heat teams. Yeah. I mean, he's unbelievable to go back. And I just have some, some joy when you go back and look at some of like the career box score numbers and you just realize like, what? Like, and, and Battier, I always loved him. Um, he was always the guy I feel like every NBA team always looks for this team wolf or this glue guy in the offseason. And they're like, we need one guy to really just help us take that one step forward. Like, you know, maybe you made the second round of the playoffs and you're like, man, we, we need one more piece. And every fan base was like, get Shane Battier, get Shane Battier. It's like there's always this one guy. And Battier is funny because you go back and look and like you're, you were hinting, he had three years in 13 seasons where he averaged 10 points or more. Like, that's amazing to play 13 years in the league and, you know, not have that type of point-per-game production. And it's not just just that. He averaged 31 minutes a game for his entire career and still. That's what's even more amazing is just kind of like understanding, like, yeah, I I didn't need to do this. I could play a lot and I could play at a high level and be a very, very important piece. And I think that's what I'm trying to get at with this whole piece was like, you don't have to just get guys that are going to put up big numbers. We all get fascinated by, you know, the Giannis that are unbelievable and average 33 a game or the job Morant's that are averaging 30 plus a game. Those guys are great. I'm not taking away from those guys, but the other guys are just as important. The guys also might get seven rebounds and six assists and three steals and, 
you know, the plus minus was the highest on the team and, and they just locked down defensively. Like those guys get you to the playoffs. They get you to championship contention. And I think those are the ones that fans also need to get excited about. Like we all get, you know, we want to watch highlights of Luca. I get it. But Luca needs supporting pieces too. All these superstars, they need guys that can help them be the best version of themselves and potentially get to a title. I think the most telling thing about Battier's career, and I'm going to bring it up again just because I think it's that indicative of the kind of player he was, was, again, he averaged 14.5 points his first year in the league Mm -hmm. for a terrible team. And then basically from that point forward, he dramatically cut down on his shots. He dramatically cut down on his scoring. And the teams around him were a lot better than they were that, you know, 23 and 59 rookie year in Memphis. Right. And he was also the one guy that I feel like every time, you know, the Heat were in a playoff series, you're just like, damn, Patty just is so good. He makes clutch plays. You know, it was just those are the guys that are so crucial where it's like, hey, he had eight points, but he hit a three with, you know, a minute left and we were only up two. And it was it cinched the game like they just know when to help out their team. They know when to rise to the occasion. And, and when they're, when their name's called or their number's called, like they step up, but they aren't going to be the the sexiest box scores you check every single night, but you can't just look at their box score because it, it their impact is much bigger than that. I saved the player that I wanted to talk about most for this article for last. And that's almost certainly a surprise for you, but the player that I wanted to talk about most in this piece is Jay Crowder. And Jay Crowder in particular was a huge player for me in terms of my personal draft philosophy, because that year I looked at Jay Crowder and thought, this is a guy who was player of the year in his conference, who proved over the course of four years in college that he can be an excellent do-it-all kind of guy. And if he doesn't have the ball in his hands, he's a solid enough shooter And on the defensive side of the ball, he can cover multiple guys. He can fill gaps. He clearly shows up as someone who, you know, can do basically anything you would want from a rotation wing in the NBA. And yet he was slated to go in the second round and he ended up going, I believe, 33rd overall. And, you know, that was just something that really, I think, made a switch for me of, you know, how far can you really drop these junior senior players who have shown over the course of their college basketball careers that a, they've shown improvement right over the course of, you know, their college careers. So they've shown the work ethic that they're willing to put in to improve their games. And B you take him as he is right now. He's an eighth man in a rotation. And Jay Crowder gets to the league and basically establishes himself almost immediately as a rotation level wing. And, you know, he started on finals teams and it really made me reevaluate a whole lot of players in terms of, okay, you know, this 19 year old with potential is great, but by the time you get to like the twenties, you know, most of the time, if you're picking in the late twenties or the mid twenties, you're a, you're a finals contender, right? You're a very good playoff team. You know, obviously if the pick was traded, that's a different thing, but you know, these are teams that, you know, as you were saying earlier, when talking about Battier, like teams that need one more guy. And yet so many of these players who, you know, were conference players of the year, proved themselves on both ends of the floor. 
end up falling into the second round because teams want to take a bet on potential. And it's like, if you're picking 23rd and you just need one more rotation level wing, you know, for me this year, that guy's going to be Jaime Jaquez, right? Like, why would you not take Jaime Jaquez if you're in that spot and you need one more guy who can be a connector, do a whole bunch of things for you out there on the floor. And Drake Crowder was really the player for me who helped me make that philosophical switch because I was looking at it like, why is he not going in the twenties? Why is nobody looking at him at the end of the first round? And sure enough, he goes early in the second and immediately establishes himself as a rotation level player. And I wasn't particularly surprised, but you know, it kind of proved in a way the point that I was trying to think through with evaluating Jay Crowder, that there are these players who are very solid all around players who, because they're 22 end up falling past the end of the first round when in reality those are exactly the teams that need those kind of guys couldn't couldn't agree more i think production versus upside is going to be one of the most frustrating um debates for evaluators scouts fans of all time because it's it's never going to go away because we always see teams and i'm not trying to sound like a know-it-all but We've we've talked about it. No ceilings, like the 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 battle for the upperclassmen. We need the upperclassmen to get more respect because we're almost punishing these guys for having production, for for staying in college, working on their game, getting better every year. But they're older now, so we can't draft them early because they're older. And it's like, why? They, I mean, they've done a lot of these guys now. They go test the waters. They get feedback from scouts, like, hey, what do you want me to work on with my game? Guys go back. They work on it. They get better and then they get punished for going back almost when it comes to the draft. It's like, well, I was supposed to go early last year and then I went back and worked on my game. And now you're going to draft somebody else because they've got more upside when it's like every year we see the same teams jump all over these guys. It's like the Milwaukee Bucks or, you know, the, the Golden State Warriors, the Miami Heat. They go jump after the guys that are presenting them value in the draft. And I think that's so important is getting the production that could help you really take that next step. It can keep you as a contender. And I never understand why when it gets to that, you know, if you want to say 25 to 35 range, why wouldn't you go get a guy that's proven he can play? Like Jaime Hawkes, I couldn't agree with you more. If it gets to that range of the draft and someone is looking for a player like this, that's just smart, tough, understands his strengths, understands his weaknesses and can play, can hang on a basketball court. Like Jaime Hawkes is going to be very intriguing. But it's just funny looking back at guys like Jay Crowder because he was – I'm right there with you, Nick. He was such a dang good college basketball player. He's tough as nails. He had good size. He was versatile. He could shoot it a little bit from outside. And, you know, he's played 10 years in the league. He's played 107 playoff games with five different franchises, which means everywhere he's gone – He's helped that team take that next step. And, you know, I know he's kind of waiting to see what happens with his future with the Suns, but I don't understand why teams aren't trying to get him because he, all he does is go somewhere and help that team, you know, take that next step, be better because he comes in, he brings the mentality, he brings the toughness. He understands his role and he gets everyone to play better because of his ability on the court. And I just think, I had to spotlight him as a, as a potential teen wolf guy, because that's exactly what we're talking about when it, when it comes to finding guys that just know how to, to be a complimentary piece. A lot of NBA teams will draft 19 year olds based on their potential, right. hoping 
that they'll become the guy that the 22-year-old version of Jay Crowder already is. Yes. and it, it, It's spot on. Go ahead. No, it's just like, you know, are the extra three years of development specifically in your program worth taking the risk that the 19-year-old doesn't pan out when you already have a pretty good idea of what the 22-year-old who's doing those things looks like? I mean, you know, I always tend to circle back to the Kings with these sorts of things, but if Monty McNair had decided, you know what, Davion Mitchell is is too old, we're going to, you know, look for a younger guy, the Kings would not have had you know, an exceptional defensive rotation guard who, you know, in his last game in particular showed real offensive flashes. And during the stretch run of last season showed real offensive flashes. Like a lot of the times you pick a 19 year old, hoping that he turns into what Davion Mitchell turned into. And, you know, consequently, if you looked at Davion Mitchell, when he was 19, I believe that was like his freshman year when he barely played at Auburn before he transfers, like you're not going to think that guy's a future NBA player, but if you have three years of proof under your belt of who this guy is, then, you know, that's why, why is it worth risking that the 19 year old turns out to be the player who you've already seen as a 22 year old? And I think it's, obviously it comes down to fit and it also comes down to, you know, GMs having the guts to do it because, if you're if you're a GM picking in the top ten, and you take that nineteen year old that you're hoping develops in a couple of years to be what you think he's going to be, and he doesn't develop, you're either going to be picking right there again, or you are not going to have a job. And, and McNair's done a great job just focusing on that. I think McNair's done a great job of kind of say, looking at the board and being like, what do we need? Like, you know, worst case scenario, like, okay, I took Davion Mitchell. He's a little bit older, but hey, worst case scenario, we got a damn good defensive guard that could play minutes and and really help out our backcourt. And if he continues to develop, we have that and an intriguing two-way weapon. Keegan Murray, you know, everyone thought that he should have taken Jaden Ivey. And he's like, hey, I I got a productive four-man that really can be an offensive weapon, a smart basketball player. I don't care that he's older. You know, I think McNair just understood production and not chasing the idea of of upside. And I think those are the smart GMs and front office guys that really stick around the league for a long time is, is understanding not when to chase the upside dream, you know, chasing the, the mythical unicorn, as we always like to say, but understanding, you know, we're baseball guys, Nick, like understanding a single and a double is going to help your team get better. Every time you swing for the fences, you're not going to hit a home run every time. And if you do swing for the fences and you keep missing, you ain't going to be in the front office much longer. So, like, the smart GMs, I think, evaluate the board, take the singles, take the doubles, and keep moving forward. And a lot of these guys that I wrote about on this Team Wolf list, like, they weren't all top 10 picks. You know, Patrick Beverly, Jay Crowder, you know, it's, it's just, it's always interesting. Dennis Rodman, Draymond Green. You can find value all over the place, but some teams got to be willing to not chase that upside dream and just take what is at the at the right in front of you. Like don't don't make it too difficult. Just take the guy that's going to come in and, and figure out a way to to stay on the court. So before we wrap things up, let's talk quickly about another Murray who is primed for a Teen Wolf moment of his own. So. For my most recent Sleeper Deep Dives article, I wrote about Iowa's Chris Murray, and 
I know that you're another fellow Chris Murray believer, but for me, I think the whole deal with the evaluation of Chris Murray as a prospect is if he just does what he did in a limited role for Iowa last season at the NBA level, that's an NBA role player, right? Just as a really good three-point shooter who isn't just a standstill guy who can move off screens, who, you know, puts up a decent number of three-point attempts a game too. I mean, he averaged over three attempts per game in under 18 minutes a game. And he really showed out, especially on the film, as a serious defensive playmaker, which, you know, defensive playmaking is something that very readily translates from college basketball to the NBA. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, sort of the Chris Murray evaluation. But for me, where I sort of came down on it is if he doesn't, you know, make any major improvements in a much more expanded role this season, I still think there's a role for him as an NBA rotation player, just as a three and D wing type. But if he can get a little bit better at, you know, his pull-ups at shooting off the dribble at generating shots for himself. I mean, he's someone who I think could challenge for the top half of the first round, but you know, maybe that's a bit aggressive. He's not quite Keegan. I mean, nobody is Keegan, obviously. Yeah, nobody is. Not even but, his brother. Yeah, exactly. But I, I am curious, you know, do you think I'm off base with that or what are your thoughts on what we might see from Chris Murray this season? Because I think there's a good chance that, he could have a breakout year this year like Keegan did last year. Yeah, I don't think you're that crazy. Um, You know, he's becoming really, really fascinating for me when it comes to evaluating this incoming class because when I get to Chris Murray, I wonder if everyone's going to like require he takes this big leap. And I'm like, I don't know if he needs to take that big leap. I think – you know, if he just sometimes during games last year, he looked a little erratic and I think it was just, he was trying to do too much. If the game just looks like it's slowed down a little bit, I think that's going to be the biggest development because there's playmaking upside, there's defensive upside. And I think for sure he's a role guy. Like we just talked about Hame Hawkes. If, if Chris Murray was on the board in that 25, 35 range, I think a team would jump all over him because he just has the the makings of a guy that really could stick around the NBA for a very long time. And I think if he does take that leap, um, I'm right there with you. It would not surprise me if, if everyone's intrigued with the, the smart, smooth shooting lefty from outside that looks like he's on the way up with his game. Um, because it's funny last year, you know, everyone knows how I feel about Keegan Murray and, and watching Iowa a lot last year. I was like, Oh, that was a nice play by Keegan. And I was like, Oh, that was Chris. Like it just happened all the time. And I was like, okay, he's got some, some upside too. And I'm really excited to see what he does because we've talked about upperclassmen and the returners. I love when returners are coming back and you get to see if what they've been working on the whole off season is going to pay off. And, I think Chris Murray's getting a little bit of love, but he he might deserve more. And, and I think I've seen a lot of mock drafts with him going, you know, late first or early second. And I'm like, he might have the potential to get a little bit of momentum and go up some boards. So I'm right there with you. You mentioned the game slowing down for him. And, you know, he played 42 minutes his freshman year. So there wasn't all that much to evaluate in terms of, you know, difference between that and year two. But I really thought that things slowed down for him on the defensive end in year two. I mean, you know, going back and watching the defensive film on him, his anticipation is just spectacular. And, you know, he's not the craziest athlete in the world. He's, he's a decent athlete, but he's not like, wow, jump out of the gym kind of athlete. And yet 
you know, when he's getting these blocks, the vast majority of the time, it's he just anticipates what the offensive player is going to do before they do it. And he just looked like on the defensive end, you know, everybody gets blown by a couple times, but for the vast majority of his defensive film, his positioning was excellent. His instincts were excellent. And it really just felt like he read what the offense was going to do. And, you know, I definitely agree with you. There were some awkward moments for him, but really I think those are more on the offensive side for me. And, you know, again, if he doesn't make this big leap as a scorer primary option type, you know, okay, that lowers his draft ceiling. But, you know, I think the thing that stood out to me most that I wasn't expecting is that defensive anticipation. Cause like you could look at the box score numbers and be like, okay, puts up a decent volume of three pointers a game, knocks down 38% of them, you know, look at the film. Okay. Shot looks pretty good. You know, solid lefty stroke gets off screens. Well, but that I think is the real difference maker for me is just the defensive anticipation that he showed, because I mean, that's the way that you make up for not being a spectacular athlete. And he was ninth in the big 10 in blocks, despite playing fewer than 18 minutes a game. And almost all of that was him anticipating, you know, not just him making the ridiculously athletic chase down block kind of play. And if you're talking about a guy that stays multiple years in college, I I think that's my dream. Second year is just like, Oh my, look at, the the instincts are coming alive defensively. Like, look at the leap he made as a defender. Cause then now he's coming back and it's like, all right, I got the defense down. It's slow. Everything was slowing down on that side of the ball. If the offense also takes another step with it, then it's like, okay, there's a full package here that could really see him go up some boards. And I'm always one of those, you know, believers, like everyone loves athleticism. Um, the speed, like I get it, but I think when you can play the game with your mind and, and be a move ahead and make up for your, maybe your lack of elite athleticism or, or quickness, but you can, you can be a step ahead, almost like a chess player. I think that's where you can stick and, and make yourself a dangerous player. And um, I, I'm really excited to watch Chris Murray this year. I, I'm right there with you. I think that's the guy that might be almost the the little bit of a wild card right now to, you know, in the first month of the season, we might be like, whoa, Chris Murray. Okay, you're, you're really starting off the season's hot. So there's a lot of talent in this class. And I think a lot of people are getting, you know, myself included, you're getting excited about a lot of other guys. And then you got to be like, oh, Chris Murray, we got we to gotta remember him. All right. Anything else you want to cover before we wrap things up? Go ahead and plug, plug away. No, I, I, thank you for having me on, Nick. Um, I'm very proud that Keegan Murray's getting some some love and some respectful minutes for your Kings. So shout out to that. But uh, I'm at Tyler underscore Rucker on Twitter, and I'm at NoCeilingsNBA.com. Come find me. Let's hang out. But thank you, Nick, as always. This was a blast. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. It was a ton of fun to talk through Team Wolf stuff, of course. You know, I knew that was going to be fun before I read it, but you know, awesome to have you on the podcast to talk about it as well. Absolutely. If you haven't seen it, you know, get your priorities straight. Go watch the movie. Not the new stuff. 1985, Michael J. Fox. Come on. All right. Get off Nathan's old man grandpa corner. <laughs> All right. Well, that is going to do it for us today on the Deep Dives podcast. As he said, he is Tyler Rucker. You can find him on Twitter at Tyler underscore Rucker, and you can find him at No Ceilings NBA. And of course, you can find his Teen Wolf article, among all the other great articles that we are releasing at No Ceilings NBA, over on NoCeilingsNBA.com. 
If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's super helpful for us, especially now that we've turned this into a five times a week podcast feed. Really appreciate all the ratings and reviews that all of you can throw in. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.